Welcome to Pat Sherlock's podcast series, interviews with top mortgage sales leaders. Learn practical tips for improving sales management results. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Pat Sherlock, and welcome to the podcast. Today's topic is improv and selling. I have the perfect expert to share his wisdom on both, and that is Kurt Blumthal. He has been senior mortgage banker at Ameris Bank. Prior to that, he was with Fidelity and Wachovia and Bank of America. Hi, Kurt. Pat, good afternoon. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure speaking with you, and I'm very honored that you have selected me to join you on this podcast. Well, Kurt, I'm so excited, as I mentioned to you, to have you talk about this topic because we've all heard all these horrible stories within our business, but we'd like to hear something on the lighter side. So I thought you were the perfect person to talk about that. But let's, before we jump into that, let's talk about how you got into the world of mortgage banking. Sure. Um, like most people that I knew, I uh, kind of stumbled into it at the time. Prior to getting to mortgage banking, I was a general manager of a golf and country club here in Atlanta, and a few friends of mine from high school started doing some FHA streamlines for a local lender, and uh, we were talking about it one time, and they were talking about all the money they were making and how easy it was, and they said I needed to get in the business. So I interviewed with a few companies locally and got a second and third interview with what was then Norwest, uh, obviously then Wells Fargo became. They passed on me saying that I had no experience. And um, they weren't hiring rookies at the time. And then a good friend of mine who was an appraiser at a local company here called Entrust, they were in business for about 16 years here in Metro Atlanta. And they said they were hiring folks with no experience to go through their training program and come out as loan officers. So I was able to join the firm and a six-month training program. But it was really unique because it wasn't just, here's your rate sheet, go out and get a loan. I learned closing, post-closing, shipping warehousing, secondary marketing, and then loan processing. And I processed for a senior loan officer that I was then paired to as a junior loan officer. Then I was cut loose after that. Well, they certainly were the traditional way that most people got into mortgage banking. It's a shame that it certainly kind of has not happened more recently. But talk to us about your mentors. I know that you've been in the business a long time. Who's been the most important mentors to you? Well, I really want to just give a quick shout out to the three primary people. Steve Sinclair, who is no longer with us, um, uh, was my mentor when I first got into the business and was really a strong person to work with. And then I had the pleasure of working with a guy, a national guy by the name of Jack Karashevsky. And Jack kind of helped me through the overall business of mortgage banking. He was at Dominion and PNC and Citizens Old Kent, guaranteed all nine yards. But he always had my back. And then one of the one of the more unique mentors that I had was an executive when I was at Wachovia by the name of Jennifer Gavry. She goes by Jennifer Harrell now. She's remarried. But she was my banking executive when I joined Wachovia back in 08. And she was a true business person's business person. Great leader. And one of the first executives that I like to say, when you had, when she asked how you were doing, she actually was truly interested in your answer, which was unique. And then I've been managed uh, since 2009 here at Ameris Fidelity prior to that with a guy by the name of Steve Copeland, who's, who's really just a great guy to work for. Well, you certainly had a lot of them, and it's so nice that you mentioned uh, so many of them. So talk to our listeners about the challenges that you have in your current position, and you're still originating after all these years. So talk about the challenges. That's true. I, I got a chance to go back after we were uh, bought out by Wells Fargo to go back and see what it was like to be back on the street. But um, like a lot of places, Georgia is not unique to lack of inventory. Um, during during 
about the last seven years, I was focusing real hard on renovation and rehab loans. Uh, I live in town when my kids graduated high school. I moved in town and started focusing on renovation and rehab loans or CPs and uh, in the local marketplace. And during the pandemic, what I discovered was that, you know, a lot of people really liked their house, but they needed to make changes to it. And when selling renovation loans, whether it's a purchase or whether it's a, a, a renovation refinance, I always call it, I coined the phrase, I love this house, but. <laughs> and everybody during the pandemic said, this is really great, but we need another office. We need another bedroom. Our kids really need to be in the basement during this pandemic. And so we did quite a few of those. And then then suddenly, um, <laughs> with the rates jumping up, suddenly people nobody wanted to uh, refinance or give up their two and three quarter to three and a half percent interest rate and renovate to the 7% mark. It was really, they were really odd that way that they didn't want to do that, but they didn't. So that that was kind of a, that's a struggle now. So try to get people to move. Now, when the rates have come back a little bit, the people who are in the low threes, high twos uh, are realizing that for their bang for their money, they need to renovate their house or expand where they currently are because everything else all things being equal, they have to kind of jump up two price points if they want to get more house for the money. Um, the other thing is the buyer's uncertainty in the market. There's there's a lot of frozen people that are that are just too afraid to make a move. Um, and and I think that's I don't think that's unique to this marketplace. I think there's a lot of people that are just unsure of where the economy's heading, and they want to make a move. And here locally, uh, a lot of institutional buyers gobbling up the smaller starter homes, um, which has really taken away a big chunk of the first time home buying market. I had done an analysis a couple of years ago, and if you look at the metro Atlanta area just outside, like the 285 perimeter, which encircles Atlanta, Georgia, 58,000 homes were bought by third party. 58,000 homes were wow. purchased by third party. That's that's a ton of people that, that you know, obviously they're going to be for renting and everything else. They're going to be using it for renting or even for flipping, but... But a lot of the first-time homebuyer market was gobbled up, and a lot of those first-time homebuyers can no longer afford it. If they were able to afford it last year in the threes and fours, when things jumped up to the high sixes and low sevens, it put a lot of people out of place. And if there were any houses in the sub-$300,000 marketplace, they were gone almost before they went on the market. So those those are kind of the primary things that I'm seeing. Um, uncertainty in the marketplace, I think the rates are stabilizing themselves, um, but but seriously, a lack of inventory. That seems to be the biggest things here in this market. Well, that leads to my next question about the challenges. What do you think are some challenges that mortgage bankers aren't necessarily addressing and should be addressing? Well, I, I kind of when, when when tasked with with thinking about this this conversation, I remember I, I went back to when I first got in the business, and I remember going to a Mortgage Bankers Association of Georgia meeting, and seeing a bumper sticker on the back of the car that said "Mortgage Bankers Do It to Themselves," and I didn't know what that meant at the time, and. I realized getting into the business a little bit further, I finally got it later on in my career, that so many people in our industry have really short memories when it comes to making mistakes. We seem to be repetitive. We're very repetitive on what we do. Um, we've got flush years followed by lean years, but we never seem to really get it. And then we go back and make the same mistakes we did before. I mean, the refi party's over. We got that. There's no question about that. You can't make up losses by volume. We're seeing a lot of consolidation as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And overcapacity doesn't necessarily mean that you need to shred your staff completely down to bare bones and we keep chasing volume. I think those are some of the same mistakes that we keep making. 
Um, I think uh, the tighter monetary policy that we see, the more restrictive uh, financial conditions are going to keep rates high, I think, for a while. I don't think we're going to, again, my my soothsayers and the things that I'm reading aren't indicating that there's going to be a significant downturn in the market where rates are going to come sliding back to the sub four marketplace. I think everyone's pretty much in consensus that they're kind of almost where they're going to be for a while. Um, and the other thing is, I think that that normal players in marketplaces need to focus on getting a larger piece of a smaller pie, right? I think with Wells retracting back in January and Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase and those types of firms that are kind of getting out of the street level origination platform. They're kind of focusing on their own customer base, which is huge anyway. I think it's going to bring up some opportunities. But the other thing, Pat, and I think you can address this even better from your training standpoint, there's got to be a back to basic approach. I think we as an industry have gotten very lazy, very easy, very short-sighted as far as how we handle our customers. And we forget sometimes that this is primarily a consumer-facing business where we need to address the consumer's you know, concerns that they have, offer really strong customer service. But networking is something that has you know, kind of been a lost art since the pandemic, especially. Um, getting out there and actually being visible out in the marketplace. Um, Ameris is a really strong player in the marketplace. We've got a strong group of, of marketing people and people that help us get out to these various realtor functions, you know, builder functions, those types of things. You have to actually get out there and do it. We talk about it in every one of our monthly sales meetings about how important it is to go to these places and make the contacts and make the connections and help the real estate community and the builder community get done what they need to get done. And the other thing is training. You know, we were all too damn busy to get trained while we, while we were in the middle of a refi cycle. And now, you know, buy down started making a comeback. I mean, Pat, you've been in the business. You started when you were 10 years old and you've been in the business a couple of years. I, Buy downs were something that I did when I first got in the business right. and then arms, arms made a comeback and all these things that we need training on that most places don't have the facilities or the, the, the time to train their sales staff. I was just going to say it's, you're hitting a topic that is dear to me for sure. But yes, you're right about all those things that you're talking about. It's, you know, we, and like I said, it's just, I've been doing this a long time. It's just, we get into cyclical amnesia. We just forget, but we, you know, I had a loan officer years ago that started sending out when faxes were important, you know, and they were sending out weekly faxes to the real estate offices on a Friday and it took him a while, but after a while he started getting business out of it, actually started getting business out of it when rates were published that way. And then he started getting business. And then of course he got too busy and he stopped doing it. And then the business fell off and we just kind of sat there and kind of smiled at each other. I'm like, well, <laughs> What do you think the cause of it is? Right. Stop doing what I was doing to get loans in the door. So, you know, there is, it is a more digital market. It is a more uh, online interfacing marketplace. But when I got in the business, I remember someone saying, when I first got in the business, that a computer was going to replace me in five years. <laughs> now, it's been longer than five years. The computer has yet to replace the sales forces of most mortgage companies. So. Well, I I agree with you on that one for sure. And I do think that it does say the need to have the right people in the right spots. No question about it. But let's kind of transition and talk about the keeping sane in a down market. I want to have you share with you your, your sideline business. Certainly you're a highly successful originator, but you've now ventured into the world of stand up comedy. Tell us about how you got involved with that. 
Sure, sure. Well, as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that I'm going to probably need a hobby after I retire. And I'm, I can't golf anymore because my shoulder's gone. Uh, I'm not a big poker player. If I move down to Florida, I will take up fishing. But I needed something. And uh, m- my partner in crime, Carol, was kind enough to purchase for me a year ago, Christmas, uh, Christmas of 21, um, a class, uh, an actual uh, comedy class with a guy by the name of Jeff Justice, who's been doing comedy classes for years here in Metro Atlanta. And it's just something that I've tinkered with and toyed with. I was a class clown in high school and always try to be the the lampshade guy in the middle of the room whenever possible. But this was something that I wanted to do. I followed comedians for a long time and thought, well, why not? You know, and I thought, well, by the time I do this, I'm I'm starting in my 60s. I, you know, by the time I get any famous and any fame at all, I'll only need one joke because I'll be working the retirement homes in Florida. So, you know, I only need one joke. Um, but so that's how we got into it. And, and, and really from then it, I thought it was going to be kind of a one-off thing. Um, but I, I got a little bit of an itch. I enjoyed being on stage. I presented for years, Pat, I've gotten on stage in front of hundreds and thousands of people, hundreds and or thousands of people in a room talking about mortgages or our company platforms, things that we do, that sort of thing. So presenting has never been a big issue for me or getting up on stage. Um, but I, I also go back to when, I was a young originator. I had a buddy of mine. We lived, worked in a bullpen configuration. He used to love listening to me when I had bad days. When I had a bad day, uh, he knew he could just sit back and laugh because he knew that my sarcasm level afterwards was just going to go off the roof because that's how I kind of decompresses. My sarcasm and my humor comes out, and he used to love watching me just have a really bad day because he knew it would be funny afterwards. And I'm I'm not a drinker. I don't do drugs. So I've always kind of used humor to break the ice or take my edge off. And what this has done, it's done a couple different things. It's, you know, keeps me a little bit sharp and nimble as far as my brain retention goes, because I'm a firm believer that the technology that we have is a great master, but it's also enslaving us to not having to think and not having to remember. And I think that's a big key. So I started doing that. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I also then dovetailed into the whole world to an improvisational comedy, which is a, a team based concept and started working with a theater here in Atlanta called whole world improv theater. They've been around since the late nineties. And, um, since you and I last spoke, I have just been recently asked to join the cast as an apprentice cast member. So I will be doing shows there regularly going forward, trying to do my improvisational comedy. And that has really helped me work with customers, listen, hear, do what they call yes and an improvisational comedy and understand what the client's needs are a little bit better. And I wish I would have taken the improv class 20 years ago. Um, went through some similar training on that, but it really made a big difference to me. And as a result of it too, now obviously social media being what it is, I'm pushing things out through social media. People are seeing it. It's a nice icebreaker. We're having topical conversations on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, And since have gotten calls and jobs uh, to to go out and perform. And most recently uh, a magazine in town called Simply Buckhead Magazine did a piece on me. Uh, in the March edition, and basically it was the premise was Atlantans at play, and I of course was representing the senior section, which offended me that I was there, but the senior section, and uh, they did a nice article on me in that, 
and that in itself, I got a phone call, I got a got a lead on a mortgage on that, and also got a lead on on improv or a, a stand up job up at a winery up in North Georgia. So it's been kind of you know, I, I've always tried to elicit some humor in what I do anyway, trying to break the ice with people as you're talking to customers and that sort of thing. But to me, it's a great way to decompress. It's also a great way to relate to people and get to know them and break down barriers a lot quicker. I think since the pandemic, I think everybody seems to be edgier. Everyone seems to be more on guard. Everyone seems to be not believing what they're reading on a daily basis. And so by interacting with people, Pat, and being able to make them laugh a little bit, kind of soften it. But buying a home is a pressure-filled situation, especially the first-time home buyers. And if you can make them comfortable by making them relax and making it personal about them or, you know, something funny that we both share, um, it seems to be, you know, it seems to be helping. And, and I, by all means, if nothing else, then when this, when this business ends for me and I go on my merry way and retire, I have a fallback option. I can go work the villages down in Florida for a while. <laughs> well, Kurt, share. I know you spent. You were talking to me about that. You went to uh, classes to learn how to write a joke and how to present a joke. And I thought it was really interesting how similar that was to selling. So, talk about how that works and how do they teach you? Sure, that's great. Yeah, that, that's great. And, and, and in the selling process, you, you kind of sometimes it's trial and error, and sometimes you have good coaching that teaches you a shorter cut or a proven method mm -hmm. that kind of works. And I went through all the training and, you know, the doorknob close and the reverse turn close. And then, you know, someone else was going to take this away from you close and everything else. But one of the things that trying to write a joke was, was first of all, you got to have to, you have to really kind of understand what audience you're writing to. Right. So if you're sitting there talking to a first time home buyer, you're not going to be blowing and going about the investment opportunities and how the mortgage is a tool and how you can use it to alternate your cash flow investments and everything else. Their eyes will glaze over. And not that they're not interested in that, but they've got enough drinking from a fire hose to go ahead and um, continue, you know, without having to, you know, glaze their eyes over with something else. And so from a, from a joke standpoint, you know, first it's a premise, then you try to flesh it out, then you tweak it. And you cut it down. And the same thing in the sales cycle. You, you you funnel out what you can. You you learn quick opportunities to get to what their needs are, their kind of highest value needs assessing, and figure out what the best course of action is going to be from a remedy standpoint. I used to call it the, you know, you always have to diagnose before you can prescribe. Otherwise, it's financial malpractice. And in writing a joke, I think it's similar. <clears throat> I think um, you know, r r you know, making sure you're going to try to have an impact that you communicate what it is you're trying to say and elicit that and make sure that the, 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 the beats of the joke, as we call it, as it's called, it, you have to, it's a timing issue. And in sales, it's the same thing. It's, it's the beats of the sale call, you know, knowing when to shut up, which I mean, I know I'm talking too much right now, but it's know when to shut up and listen to somebody and know when to, when to continue the conversation. That's really kind of helped with that as well. And like I said, I wish, you know, hindsight being 2020, 20, I would like to have taken these classes years ago. I think they would have helped immeasurably. So has it helped you, you? You're talking about that a little bit now, but from a presentation standpoint, it sounded like you always regretted that. And certainly that probably was very true. But how has it uh, helped from the standpoint? It sounds like it's really made you a better listener is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. You've got to be in tune. You know, if you're looking at an audience, you've got a, you've got a packed house. You've got a lot of people that are there all from diverse backgrounds, all with different points of view and all with different types of senses of humor. 
And if you start off one direction and you're not hearing feedback, that's you know it's laughter on the stage, or mm-hmm, or yes, if you're doing a sales, then you've got to shift. You've got to be able to pivot very quickly. And I think the improv. One of the funny things in taking the improv, I didn't realize how many attorneys take improv classes, and and trial attorneys are taking improv classes to help them think on their feet quicker. That to me has been a big help as well, is being able to listen to what's going on and then quickly adapt to that particular joke if you are on stage or that particular customer's needs. And so when you look at it from the standpoint of your production side, um, have you been able to close deals that maybe you wouldn't have closed before? I'm just curious. Well, I think I think as the markets shift and as things get tougher, uh, I was joking with a loan officer about about six, uh, maybe eight months ago, and we were talking about how the length of time that you spend speaking with a customer has greatly increased. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not because we're smarter. It's just because we have fewer deals in the, or we have time. And that's the sad part is we get too busy to talk to people and really kind of understand exactly what they need. And then we just get into a hard sale versus being able to use it and understand it and then sell around it. So to answer your question, yeah, to an extent, um, I can see that again, because in, in a difficult marketplace, and, you know, if everybody's just rate shopping, when rates go up, now it becomes nothing but rates. So who's got the cheapest gallon of milk? Mm-hmm. They're going to go in and buy the $2 gallon of milk because it's on sale over at Kroger versus Publix. And to get them off point on the rate issue by talking to you, Pat, if you're my customer and learning a little bit about you, what your needs are, what your goals are, how long you're going to hold on to the house, sure. talking to them and understanding those points. Yes, it's helped immeasurably because there's, you've got to wait for the feedback. You've got to wait for the response before you talk, you know, through the sale. Because a lot of times, you know, hey, what are your rates? Hey, my rate's six and a half percent. Okay, thanks. You're too high. Bye. But what just happened? Right. You know, exactly. you've lost the deal. So that is something that, that I was I was trained and coached and I've been to your seminars and I've, I've, I've had some really good quality mentors in my past that have taught me that, that it's not just about that. Because if you, once you turn the mortgage process into a commodity, then right. it's just strictly the lower price wins. Even though it may not be the lower price, we all know we've had people that, you know, <laughs> I had a guy come in and he goes, man, your rate's like a quarter percent higher. I said, yeah, but see that $6,000 on that line item, that's points. What's that? Well, that's what you got for getting the lower rate. And I said, do you want to pay points? No. Okay, well, that's what you're doing. And so, you know, sometimes you got to handhold them a little bit through that. But, um, but yeah, to answer your question, it, it, it has definitely helped through the sales side. So from the standpoint of, and of course, this is what you see with the great comedians like John Stewart, all of those guys, and going back over history of the great comedians, they're able to maintain, I think it, it's more of the, they center their their body and their nerves, even though they're in a tense situation, which by definition really is a selling situation. How did they teach you an improv to center that quietness that you need to have so you actually can move into, in your case, jokes or move into the selling situation? Uh, That's an awesome question. And and they actually do teach that because going into a blind, not knowing what to expect in a class, right? Both on the, on the stand-up side or on the improv side, I had no idea. And you do everything, practice, you practice everything. You practice how to step up onto a stage, how to grab the microphone, how to grab the microphone stand, how to get rid of the microphone stand. Basic, simple things that you would think are no big deal. Right. But to find your center, you know, that's also where you can find your center too. If the nerves are getting you, 
walk up, grab the mic, hold on to the mic. That's your security blanket for a second. Then when you're ready, pull the mic stand away and start talking. With improv, and I've never been one into meditation. I'll be very candid on that. I've never been. I've tried it and you know, kind of did it when I was playing sports and stuff. But one of the things that we do is, is for 15 minutes before every practice or every rehearsal that we do, it's quiet time, focused, square breathing, focusing on meditating, looking, you know, clearing your head out completely and focusing on what you've got to do next. And the art of yes and, it seems so simplistic. And yes and is kind of the basic premise of all improvisational comedy is if you say something, Pat, I need to internalize it, agree with it, say yes, and then I up the game, right? But I have to, I can't negate. I don't want to negate. I don't want to shut you down. And that in a sales cycle is the same thing. I don't want to close down my customers. I want to be able to talk with them, not at them. And with improv, you're on the stage with people all the time. You're never by yourself. So you're always working with scene partners. So it's always a collaborative effort. And, and the ultimate goal is to make the crowd laugh. Well, in sales, it's a collaborative effort. My team, my openers, my processors, my closers, my underwriters, everybody's got to work together. My closing attorneys got to work together in kind of a symbiotic way of getting the file to closing and making the transaction, which is the purchase of the house or whatever happens, the building of the house, occur. And that's really kind of, you know, when you said, you know, keeping sane in, in this in this type of market, that's been, you know, that's basic blocking and tackling skills 101, but I think we lose sight of that. And I think there's been a, a turn away from that because I don't know if, it, if it's still OG school, you know, or whatever, but but it's, I think that makes a big difference, but I think that that really does help. So are they also teaching, it's one thing to do it in person, and it's another thing to do it on video. I'm curious about the approach to that. Is that something that they go into? Absolutely. They they recommend strongly that you record yourself all the time and video, you t- videotape yourself most of the time. Now, stand-up is a little different because it's static. You're not really doing a lot of physicality. You can. There's some physicality on it, but it's mostly just joke-telling. And on the improvisational side, though, it's more physical and as well as spoken. So video works really well, but they definitely emphasize that. They say record yourself at every opportunity you can. In fact, some of the premise writing joke classes that I've taken say record just a stream of consciousness rant through speech to text and then edit it down and edit it down and edit it down and rewrite it as needed. But that way you kind of get out what you're trying to get out without getting hung up on the material or the joke and then fine tune it and fine tune it. But definitely they say to record. But also one of the things that I've, I, it's, it's opened up a whole new circle of, of, of people and friends that I've got now. But it's a collaborative effort too. We get together once a month on a Saturday at a local diner, the Landmark Diner where the punchline is in Atlanta. And we just get together and share where we're at, what we're writing and what we're doing. And a lot of collaborative material comes out of it because, hey, Pat, I didn't think of that. Mm-hmm. That's great. Can I use that? Yeah. And so there's a lot of, you know, symbiotic. And, and that's the thing, too, that I think offices where you've got an, a, an extremely spread out sales force where you can't get that synergistic approach of, of selling by being around other people or you're not on calls with people or you're not in meetings with people, I think. That's a big part of our industry that's missing that we used to do when, when, you know, prior to pandemic times. And I think it's important. 
And so when you think about like Jerry Seinfeld, I can remember him doing when they analyzed why was he so funny? And he would talk about how he would edit, edit and edit what he was going to say, kind of what we would call in selling scripting. Um, and so it sounds like they emphasize that a lot. There's no question. I have every every bed and or otherwise piece of material that I've ever written. I've kept it. I have a log of it. And that's the thing that I watched a special on Seinfeld specifically. And like him or not like him, he's one of the most famous, one of the most wealthiest comics around. And he has every single joke he's ever written on a piece of paper that he keeps in boxes. Right. And at one point in the special, he sits amongst all the paperwork in a lot somewhere. In, I don't know where it was in New York, I think. Sure. And every and he can reference Pat. He can reference. Yeah, I remember when I wrote that joke. I was over here, and this is what. And, and he can go right back and do it. So from a scripting standpoint, strong. Write it down. Repeat it. Reread it. Record it. Repeat it. Use mnemonic ways of finding out how to remember it. You know, whether it's violent action words from paragraph to paragraph or whatever you need to do. Scripting, dialoguing, and and doing that prepares you and, and knowing it because you know from the from a stage as a learning standpoint you have to become unconsciously competent with the material to be able to pull it out whenever you can and and that only comes through repetition it only comes you know when i'm practicing right. for a set i've got a show on the 16th i'm practicing for the set now people mm -hmm. are like why so early i'm like are you kidding this is actually kind of late because it's new material Right. Well, I would be derelict in my duties if I didn't ask you to share some of your 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 comedy routine with our listeners today. So feel free to add whatever's worked for you. Well, you know, one of the one of the ones, one of the earlier ones I wrote was was really kind of a thing that says, you know, I, I got a late start in comedy. Obviously, I didn't get involved with 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 stand up at all till I was over 60 years old. Right. So I got a late start. And in getting a late start, you start talking to other people that are doing it professionally. And like originating, you know, it's going to take you a while to get ramped up to where you're starting to put out some numbers. And if you look at our industry, some of the people that are doing some of the biggest numbers have all been in the business for a very long time. I'm not saying it can't be done if you're younger, but but typically it takes a while to kind of get ramped up to be that successful. And at, you know, at 60 years old, it's going to take me 10 years to become famous on the comedy circuit, right? Before I get my own show, you know, Netflix special or something like that. And, and I jokingly said, by then I'll be 70 years old. I'm only going to need one joke because I'll just work those memory care units in Florida. And I'll just repeat <laughs> the same one time and time again. And the other thing is, you know, we have a tendency in our business to label everything. We have, uh, we used to joke at Wachovia that we had too many uh, TLAs and everyone would go, what's a TLA? I'm like, that's well, a three letter acronym. And, you know, we had too many little buzzwords and everything gets labeled. And when I was single, I didn't have a label. I just told everybody I was single, right? And I would check the box that I was single. I'd go to singles bars or singles parties. And then you find someone and you start dating them and you become a boyfriend and a girlfriend. And after that, you get, serious and then I became a fiance and I got married and I was a husband and we were married for 19 years and then I got divorced and I became a husband <laughs> and I was you know after becoming a husband then I realized poof I'm old again I'm like on the dating circuit I'm labeling myself but one of the things that um I found out is that that my my current partner and I she and I have been together for 11 years but we are not married. I know it's scandalous but we're not married. And 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 people my friends just go, well, "Why don't you, you know, why don't you just make it easy and get married?" And I tell them, "I don't I did that once and I bought the t-shirt and I'm still paying for that t-shirt." 
And, and, and you can't, you know, I can't, so what do I call her? What do you call someone that you're with for 11 years that you plan on spending the rest of your life with that you're not married to? Can't call her girlfriend. Sounds like I'm 12 years old again. I can't say, I can't say, you know, that, that there were uh, significant others because that's just emotionally detached. Um, when my dad, when my mom passed away, my dad started dating someone. He used to call her, his lady friend, which I always thought he was dating an escort or a hooker, you know? And, and then I said, I can't, I can't say partner because in this town partner connotes something different and not that there's anything wrong with it. I mean, partner's fine. And so I just introduced her as Carol and she just introduces me as this is my jerk. So, you know, that's, that's kind of one of the jokes that I do, um, you know, and, and, and I talk about runners and how much I hate runners and Pat, I don't know if you run, but I don't, my girlfriend, not my girlfriend, so there I go again with my girlfriend, my, my spouse goes, she runs, she's a marathoner. She's getting ready to do a half marathon this weekend. And, you know, they're proud. They have their 26.2 stickers on the back of their car. And I have a, I have a sticker on the back of my car and it, it says 0.0. I don't run. And I'm proud of that. And, and I say, I tell people all the time, I said, have you ever seen, I mean, seriously, go out and look wherever you live, go out and look at the runners that are running. And have you ever seen a runner running, looking happy? No, yeah. no, no. They look like they're dying, right? They look like they're dying. And compare that to the guy sitting at the counter at a waffle house, knocking down a, all-star breakfast with a waffle and some scattered, covered and smothered hash browns. That dude's happy as hell. And he, he is dying. So, you know, there's the difference between runners and waffle house people, but that's kind of, that's kind of the bits that I have done in the past. And it's, it's more observational and it's more self-deprecating and let's all laugh at each other than it is poking fun. I don't do politics. I don't do heavy sex jokes. I don't, I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, and uh, I'm working now on um, my new bit's going to be since it's it's art festival time here. I don't know where it is by you if it's art festival up there, but boy, we love our art festivals here in Atlanta. It's just we got just finished with pollen season, and pollen season is done, and now we're going to the arts festival. And um, you know, it, it, all the arts festivals. If you really think about what you're missing, it's it's really kind of a hodgepodge of weird, right? Would you not agree? I mean, it's you're going to be purchasing art or earrings or clay pottery or something from someone who sits in a tent as you're going there. So <laughs> that's what I'm going to be. That's what I'm going to be riffing on. And uh, my next set, and it's going to be talking about, you know, when you go and you buy something from an arts festival, typically you come back home and ask yourself why you just did that. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> not till you get home. So not till you get home. So that's yeah. kind of a taste pad. I, I could go on if you want me to, but I no, know your time is busy. I think you've done a fabulous job, and it's been super interesting to hear how similar the improv and comedy world is to our selling world and what it takes to be successful with it. And I want to thank everybody for listening today, and, and certainly I want to thank Kurt for sharing his wisdom, and we certainly appreciate you spending time with us today. Thanks so much, Kurt. Uh, you're very welcome, Pat. We need to keep it sane in a down sales market. You know that, right? Oh, yeah. That's our theme. That's for sure. So thanks so All much. Right. Thanks again, Pat. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We appreciate you spending time with us. If your sales team needs training in hiring and lead generation, schedule a free consultation by emailing me at psherlock at qfsconsulting.com.